Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Kevin Byrne, a fellow with us here at CGAI. Kevin also happens to be Vice President, GHG Estimation and Coordination, and Chief Analyst, Canadian Oil Markets at S&P Global Commodity Insights, and right now is in Houston at the Globe's largest energy conference called Zero Week in Houston. Before we get into our discussion with Kevin, um, I'm going to have a quick discussion with CGI Fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager, Joe Kalman, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things, Joe? Things are good, Kelly. I uh, definitely envy Kevin for uh, being down at Zero Week. I'd love to go down there some at some point in my life, maybe maybe in a few years. Um, let's work on that. We got to find a, somebody a sponsor to send us down there to bring back information. What's going on? Fortunately, we also we had an event on uh, critical minerals in Toronto, associated with PDAC, which uh, will get us right into our first topic of the day, which is uh, lithium supply. So on Sunday, representatives from Argentina at the PDAC Mining Conference in Toronto said that their own country alongside Chile, Bolivia, and Brazil are exploring the creation of a lithium cartel in emulation of OPEC. The establishment of an organization of this kind would have dramatic effects on lithium supply in the coming decades. Uh, These countries control around 30% of the world's production of lithium. And uh, more importantly though, the sailors found in the lithium triangle of Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina contain around 65% of the world's known reserves of lithium, giving them a strong hand in the future of lithium supplies. Most lithium currently is supplied from hard rock spodamine in Australia. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about 30%, Joe, because that's about the percent of oil that uh, OPEC produces. Uh, there's lots on uh, lots of questions about this, though. Um, over the last 60 years, OPEC has been able to exert strong control over oil prices due to their direct control over production via their national oil companies. Chilean law has established lithium as a strategic mineral. Funny that you and you and I were discussing the the nomenclature before, the difference between strategic and critical, but that's for another day. Only permitting private companies to acquire concessions if they are operating under partnership with the stand-owned Chilean Production Development Corporation with this Chilean constitution still being redrafted, additional changes to lithium mining rights might still be forthcoming. On the other hand, Argentina does not have direct control over lithium, the federal uh, Argentina. In fact, similar to Canada, Argentina's constitution establishes the provinces as the owners of mineral resources in each jurisdiction. As a consequence, in January, the Argentine state of La Rioja declared lithium a strategic resource and suspended all mining rights for 120 days. Nevertheless, uh, lithium OPEC is a very real possibility as the need for lithium remains significant for most battery chemistries with enough energy density, especially for vehicles. Interesting, Joel, what do you think? I think that this is a very real possibility. And uh, I mean, the, the argument that OPEC has had for a long time is that they maintain stability in oil prices, not just that they restrain the supply of that's entering the market, and uh, you can believe them or not, but um, if these companies uh, enter into the lithium market, then it could provide some more certainty about high prices that kind of allows for more mining elsewhere in the world, I suppose. But um, 
we'll have to see exactly how things shake out where it comes to uh, this sort of cartel. Because uh, like you said, um, the question is like, will Argentina have any control over how much lithium enters the market? Um, how much control exactly will Chile influence over uh, preventing its own miners from uh, putting more supply on the market? It's a delicate balancing act even within OPEC as we've seen in the past uh, few weeks where now that uh, the UAE uh, was uh, alleged to have been considering leaving the cartel, it's uh, it's a difficult thing to keep going, but definitely a real possibility. Yeah, that's another discussion. We'll have another day. What else have you got for us today? Well, uh, continuing the discussion about the possibility of electric vehicles into the future, uh, let's talk about the EU-US competition over electric cars. So on Wednesday, the Financial Times reported that Volkswagen is putting a battery plant in Eastern Europe on hold until the EU can cough up enough subsidies to match the 9 billion to 10 billion euros that it can expect from building a factory in the United States. Uh, the European Union is expected to publish the Net Zero Industry Act, its response to the American Inflation Reduction Act, next week. Uh, Financial Times reports, however, that industry executives have been disappointed by early drafts of the EU subsidies, which are not plush enough to compare with American handouts. On Wednesday, the EU's Internal Market Authority warned that the Inflation Reduction Act threatens Europe's competitiveness and resilience, distorting competition and investment decisions. Well, that's interesting, but the IRA is not the only factor. This news comes as Europe begins to emerge from a period of extremely high energy prices, where European governments spent over 750 billion euros since September of 2021 to shield households from the worst effects of these of this energy crisis, uh, notwithstanding war in uh, Ukraine. Major industrial players such as BASF and Volkswagen, on the other hand, have felt the brunt of high energy prices, forcing them to lower their natural gas and utility consumption, but also, and more importantly, I think, to look elsewhere to expand future operations. This all comes as EU President Ursula von der Leyen expects to visit Washington on Friday to discuss US and EU cooperation on critical minerals and batteries. The European citizens are bearing the brunt of all this in the, at the end. What else, Joel? Yeah, last up, let's talk a bit about Kazakh crude oil supply. Uh, Bloomberg reported Tuesday that Kazakhstan was having difficulties sending enough crude through Russia's pipeline network to allow them to replace uh, Russian origin supplies. While Russian seaborne crude is still under sanction, countries in Eastern and Central Europe, which were dependent on flows from Russia's pipeline system, were providing an exemption to sanctions that went into place for Russian oil on December 5th. But many of these countries are nevertheless trying to curtail their purchases of Russian crude by replacing it with crude from Kazakhstan piped through Russia. This is especially important for Germany's Schwett refinery, which provides Berlin with most of its refined oil products and historically received its crude oil supplies from Russia through the Druzba pipeline. Germany seized the refinery from Rosneft in February as part of a crude oil cooperation deal with Poland which led Russia to severely constrain crude supplies to Poland. This in turn forced the Poles to divert more crude from their Gdansk terminal on the Baltic Sea to their own refineries, leaving the Schwett refinery in the cold. The friction of war, right? This is exactly what it is. Circumstances and events, my dear boy, events. <laughs> Kazakhstan, meanwhile, has disappointed. 
you know, more to the point. While the first deliveries to Germany were delivered in late February, Bloomberg reported on Tuesday that the amount that will be delivered this quarter is about a tenth of what was originally planned. This is largely due to Kazakhstan missing OPEC targets by around 130,000 barrels per day due to unplanned outages. Compounding the issue is Kazakhstan's access to global markets through, through the Black Sea, which provides a much more attractive outlet for the remaining production. Um, you know, it's, it, it's all that action on the margins, Joe, eh? The vagaries of global geopolitics. Like, it's about resources and about transportation. Like, basically... Really, that's what it comes down to, right here, right? This is a this is a microcosm and a kind of a junior class in geopolitics on its just on its own. Mm-hmm. The more I, the more I think about this, Joe, these are very good inter- and very interesting developments. Thanks for sharing those with us. Uh, yeah, not a problem, Kelly. And uh, to our listeners, if you are interested in these quick updates, you can subscribe to our free Energy Security Forum newsletter on our website to receive an overview of the stories shaping energy security and energy geopolitics around the world every Wednesday. I really would advise people to do that. Like this week's edition has some really cool things in it. Let's go over and talk to Kevin Byrne. For today's interview recorded February 28, 2023, we discuss upstream emissions from oil and gas and the methods used for tracking these emissions and how this could affect the trade of oil into the future. Very happy to have join me today from Calgary, Kevin Byrne. Kevin is Global Head of Centre of Emissions Excellence and Chief Analyst, Canadian Oil Markets and S&P Global Commodities Insights. He's also a fellow with us here at CJI. Kevin, great to see you again and uh, looking forward to chatting for a bit here today. Pleasure to be here. Kevin, I'd like to, I think people have a bit of a misunderstanding or maybe I'm wrong about this, what's happened in the past, let's say half decade about scoping of emissions who's responsible for what and who creates what. Could you give us a short explanation of scope one, two, and scope three emissions and how this might affect emissions tracking? Sure. I can give it a shot anyways. I, it's understandable there's confusion. Um, even the names kind of elicit some confusion, right? Um, so this is about how we think about who's responsible for which emissions. And so scope one emissions are direct emissions, right? So these are emissions associated with your activity specifically. So Kelly, if you think, you know, you imagine you own a refinery, right? Um, yeah. Or I'm thinking, you know, you own a refinery and you put a physical fence around that refinery, right? And you've got heaters going and boilers going and you're generating hydrogen. And so you're burning some natural gas to do that as well. Those are generating that conversion of the natural gas to a CO2 molecule and maybe some incidental, uh, accidental methane release. Those are your responsibility. They're in your plant gate, right? Inside your fence. So that's scope one emissions. As a result of the processing of the crude oil and the products you're producing, you're generating emissions right there. Uh, scope two is around indirect. Is a, is a t- scope two and three are both indirect emissions, but they're slightly different. So you, you have this refinery and it's, it's, it's burning some natural gas to generate emissions, but you're also power, pulling some power off the grid, right? So there's a, a power line coming into your plant those emissions are occurring somewhere else, 100 miles away at a generation facility somewhere, right? You're offsetting your emissions by bringing in that power rather than having a generator on site. Many reasons for it. And so scope two is accounting for those inbound imports. It can also mean exports, right? So in the Canadian oil sands, there's a lot of cogeneration. Some of them are surplus and they export to the grid, right? So it's about balancing for these emissions occurring elsewhere or would be occurring elsewhere. Scope three, think about the value chain emissions. So these are 
again, indirect emissions, but they're even more removed from your facility, right? So whereas you could argue that power coming to your plant as a result of your activity, the there is emissions associated with the production of the products that you would be consuming in the refinery. So you upstream extraction or you go right back, land use disruption, drilling completion, production, extraction, transportation um, for the gas or gas processing, all the way to get till it gets to the front of your facility. There's emissions associated with that. And then there's emissions associated with the products you produce. So the diesel, the gasoline, it gets shipped off somewhere else and gets combusted. Does your scope three emissions. And so it's about drawing circles of responsibility, or maybe that's not the best word, but your impact on not only the emissions that you're directly responsible for, but indirectly driving as well. There isn't another way to think about emissions as well, which is life cycle uh, intensities. So this is um, less about thinking about a facility or a physical place and more about thinking the products. So what's the greenhouse gas intensity of diesel? Now, it's not about your refinery anymore, Kelly. It's about the greenhouse gas intensity of diesel, the product that comes out of your refinery gate and how it looks versus other diesels. Or um, you can look at everything right through your Coke cans if you want when you look at life cycle intensity. So it's all the stages involved in the production of that good um, and all the emissions associated with that uh, use case for that good. So two different things, scopes typically around assets, life cycle, you think about products. And I guess, you know, in the fossil fuel sector, is it not true that upstream and downstream emissions would be almost re really 20% of the total scoped emissions? Like, is not that scope three that you talked about the lastly products, the majority of emissions? Yeah, it depends on who and what, really, um, but it can be as high. But, you know, it, it, the plus or minus 5%, like, or, or whatever. Yeah, like we've seen it as much as 95% is from the combustion of the fuel, depending on that particular value chain. But generally speaking, you say 15 to 20% sits up front in front of combustion. You know, so combustion or the use of the fuels is the majority of the emissions that are associated with um, a hydrocarbon change in typical, typically. So you're right. And then it gets even smaller fraction. You think of just the upstream stage or the refining stage and all those pieces. Yeah. If, yeah. Yeah. Like a highly efficient gas. Like I'm going to say that LNG is going to have, you know, in the high nineties of emissions post transportation. And for instance, like I, um, because it's, you know, especially or am I going down a rabbit hole that I can't get out of here because Canadian gas produced efficiently through an LNG plant that's powered by electricity coming from hydro. It's got less emissions than natural gas produced somewhere else in the world that doesn't have that. That's right. Is that not it, true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waterborne transportation generally is more efficient from an emission standpoint than overland pipeline flows. Um, you, you know, really? You're talking about, you know, my, uh, in the upstream extraction in Western Canada, you can electrify some of those drilling Drilling operations in the Motney, the gas molecule coming out um, would then be lower carbon intensity at the wellhead. It'd be shipped on a pipeline, could be electrified as well back into the BC hydro grid, very low carbon intensity. That LNG facility, although it, you know, it's going to have mixed power sources, it's going to have still some natural gas, but if you electrified it, you could get a very low carbon intensity fuel out of that as well. And then your shipping distance matters uh, as well. So you could get a very low uh, carbon intensive molecule coming out of Western Canada. Well, then let's go into that a little bit more um, on how emissions are tracked in the upstream part of oil field operations. Um, you know, I can't imagine that each wellhead is going to have some sort of digital recording device on it oh. to tell you what the emissions are. How, how do you guys 
at S&P Global Commodity Insights go about quantifying emissions from various operations? So we're, we're lucky and blessed. We have very large um, data sets. We have lots of people gathering multiple different data points. So in North America, generally speaking, we see it as the highest uh, data density for upstream oil and gas from, from basically government regulatory filings of various sources. And we scrape it all and we bring it in. Uh, we have built a model with that covers our North American emissions. Um, and it's over 5 billion data points at this point. Goes back 100 years and go, extends forward into the natural life of every well in operation currently. And we are using over 200 variables per well um, to estimate the emissions. This is still not going to be as good as an operator can do. We're not operators, so we're not going to have you know, flow valve kind of numbers associated with every piece of equipment, which some operators will have. Um, but this does allow us to provide a consistent um, comparative analysis of all those wells, and we can literally heat map them and get an understanding of the relative carbon intensity from those, those operations. We're in the detailed process of QCing and comparing against reported regulatory numbers and corporate reporting as well, trying to narrow down those differences, because obviously there's still operational differences that we can't pick up, things like uh, an electrified drilling rig or an electrified operation, we may not always be able to pick that up accurately. So we're going through and trying to systematically add those details. And those things matter. Your fuel sources really do matter. Um, so it is, it is a, for us, it is, an, you know, it's, it's been a couple of years of labor to get to this point. And now the data is flowing in. And uh, frankly, it's, uh, you know, you've known me for a while, Kelly, I'm an analyst and I kind of nerd out at uh, this kind of stuff. I love seeing the data now. And we're just starting to turn through and try to understand what it is telling us. You know, as the globe, as P, and we're going to get into global emissions here in a minute, but, and, and I hope I don't, not sounding trite, but does this not position operators in Canada, especially much better for the future uh, of the whole, this whole specter of global GHG emissions measurement? And, and, uh, you know, again, it sounds, might sound corny, but doesn't that sort of dictate that Canada could be the last barrel or MCF produced? Like I, it just seems to me that I just can't believe that big state owned enterprises, national oil companies will do this until they're absolutely forced to, or, you know, jurisdictions of less repute regard, uh, democratically. Am I riding a unicorn here, Kevin? Yeah, it depends on your incentives, right? So if you believe the only way the market will incorporate emissions is through government policy measures, um, then that you may have that case, right? So certainly NOCs may not have the same incentives because of the revenue generated and significance to those national budgets. However, we don't necessarily believe that government policies are going to drive this in, alone. Um, we do see interest in uh, incorporation of carbon into business decisions writ large, and you see that through greater levels of financial disclosure and reporting. And we also see interest in differentiated um, trading of commodities. We've seen a number of LNG cargos go with various um, offsets associated with the estimated carbon intensity. So it does appear to us that the market is trying to incorporate uh, carbon intensity into the business decisions and into trading. Um, it, it is likely the case that the, the data sets available to do that have been not sufficiently comprehensive uh, and not sufficiently uh, potentially transparent enough to drive the confidence required to make those transactions complete. Uh, at SMB Global Commodity Insights, that's really what we're focused on. We're really focused on uh, building the tools and metrics the market needs and the confidence in them to enable the market to transact. So when the market gets there, there is an incentive, whether you're an NOC or a Western Canadian producer, 
to drive down your carbon intensity because um, effectively it's becoming a competitive metric. It's going to be a key performance indicator. And, and as a result, we do see um, basically the upstream competing globally around these metrics. Interesting. Let's talk about global emissions a bit. Um, you know, the production processes are, and regulations, various other factors are different around the world. And, you know, I'm sure that, and I'm hopefully you're going to tell us, per barrel production emissions vary widely around the planet. What, where in the world is, are the lowest per barrel emissions from production? Or is that just a, uh, is that, can you answer that question with any certainty? Yeah, so we touched on a few issues when I, when I answered that question. I think the first one is a lot of the discussions to date have been around field or basin level comparisons. So an average of sure. what a particular play look like. With the approaches we've taken with going down as granular as possible and in even you know sub-well kind of analytics in some cases where we can see and model the fuels, we are seeing incredible variation in all plays globally. Um, and what I mean is you know, the, the intensity that we're seeing in any given play ranges wildly. So I'll give you a couple of examples. If you think about, um, you know, in, we completed a comprehensive review of the North Sea uh, just before Christmas. We estimated the average intensity of the North Sea, which I would say is amongst some of the best assets in the world right now from a carbon intensity perspective. But the average intensity of that, that region, which is for us was the, the UK and Norwegian side, averaged about 12 kilograms per barrel. Um, and I'll put that in contrast to the oil sands. We estimate the oil sands around 69 kilograms per barrel. And that wow. causes people to like, that's six times difference, Kevin. But the oil sands intensity has incredible variation. Each individual operator is quite different than the average. In fact, the average typically doesn't re represent very much within a play. And what I mean by that is the oil sands variation we mo my model goes from about 39 to 127 kilograms about a year ago. Um, the North Sea ranged from under one kilogram for some assets, which is amazing, uh, to over 150. Uh, the Williston Basin, we average as uh, about 24 kilograms um, in 2021, and it ranged from, again, under one to multiple hundreds. And this is because, although there's many factors that will influence the intensity of an operation, so, you know, your level of measurement, your um, operator practices, your type of drilling completion, the valves and whatnot, but so do rocks, right? So this is, this is the point in the presentation where the geologists get to still be right. Rock quality matters. And the reason why rock quality really matters when we talk about intensity is all that is is a metric of emissions divided by productivity. And so that means the most productive, the highest yielding wells will typically be advantaged from an emission intensity perspective. So those people holding the best acreage and have the best run room are probably gonna have, have the ability to be more resilient through transition than others. This also implies that competition will not be as clear cut as you know, Canada versus, uh, or you know, pick on the Motney, Motney versus Permian or the oil sands versus something else. There'll be competition across those plays on that intensity, upper bound intensity that we're gonna see everywhere. That's interesting. If you recall, well, I know you'll recall, you, you, you guys put on a conference in, in DC last summer uh, at, uh, that I attended, and uh, I actually, we had a discussion about this, and I and I don't know if you can answer it or not. And I'm a bit off script here, but have uh, you guys not created data that said that I'm, I'm into Canada here more specifically a, a bit before we move on? But that you feel that the that peak emissions in the oil sands will be reached sometime in this decade. Not, not, we're not talking about this 42% versus 30% reduction, but ab absolute emissions 
in your modeling will peak in about 26 or 27. Can you answer that? Yeah, we, we produced a paper or published a paper and it's public. So, you know, don't take my word for it. Go ahead and download it. Um, where we tried to forecast both the future intensity and the absolute emissions of the oil sands under largely an extension of business as usual. So the, and that includes, I should say, the application of new um, you know, new technologies such as solvent assisting, right. extraction, yeah. CCS and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and what we found from an absolute emission perspective, uh, we saw the potential for the emissions to peak within the mid part of this decade. So, you know, in the 24, 2024 to 2026 window, really around 2025, but it, you know, it's splitting hairs because it kind of plateaus in there before bending over. And what really drives that is both ongoing intensity improvements at a relatively similar pace we've seen historically and a slowing of oil sands growth. Um, you know, we're seeing optimizations and we're seeing the ramp up of existing facilities, but we're not seeing new greenfield facilities come forward. That was my next question. Yeah, th this is brownfield operations, right? Like yeah. expansion so that, of existing facilities. Yeah, and so the intensity improvements begin to overtake the production growth rate, which leads to a peaking, which hasn't been the story in the last decade. Production has grown at a rate that exceeded the ability of the intensity improvements, which, which have occurred and have been material. In the decade ahead, we see that the intensity improvements exceeding the production growth, and it leads to a peak in the beginning decline. After that point, that pace and scale of decline really de depends on the pace of the de deployment of critical technologies, one of which is carbon capture and storage, which you do see the industry talking a lot about uh, right now. Well, and uh, another thing that I don't think you, and I think you and I, I'll just, just to clarify for the listeners, but I don't think that your, your analysis factored in anything really ground, like maximum groundbreaking, like the reduction of electrical use by, by SMRs, for instance, that's not factored no. in there. Like things that could happen that, well, you know, the, the global push toward decarbonization and the numbers that people trot out about net zero in 2050, and have to include a bunch of things that haven't even been invented yet. So yeah, we, didn't, we didn't go out that far. We tried to stay within commercially available deployable technologies today. And then we try to consider a reasonable pace of deployment based on existing kind of business as usual operations. So we did think CCS will come to fruition uh, and would be deployed. Um, but it is not being deployed in our estimation at the scale the industry is talking about either. And so well, and that's also, right. Overshoot, overshoot, right? Like, it, you know. Well, it, it implies that the industry has an ambition that exceeds business as usual, which shouldn't come as a shock to anybody. Right. <laughs> Um, earlier this month, which is ending today, actually, yeah. uh, a, news, a news story broke that the Pathways Alliance of Major Alberta and Oil Sands Companies has signed a contract with Wood Engineering for engineering and field work in preparation for their 400-kilometer CO2 trunk line, which would gather emissions from almost all of the major oil sands operations and, and pipe it down to the Cold Lake area uh, for storage in reservoirs. Um, have you guys at S&P Global conducted any analysis of the possible emissions intensity reduction from oil sands operations or if they're paired with carbon capture and storage? We just touched on this a second ago, but could you give us more detail? Sure. Just on the study we released in March, and we've reran it, I should say, we reran it, um, and we haven't published it, but we reran it out of our own curiosity based on changes in, in production and optimizations. And the results didn't materially change. We still get the same kind of window of... Um, uh, uh, peaking, the, the reductions by 2030 20, 20, and 2035 were a little bit steeper, 
um, and that's because of more optimizations, which are very efficient um, ways to increase production. Um, but from that study, we modeled a potential for a 20, um, you know, a 28% um, reduction in greenhouse gas intensity from 2020 to 2035. Um, that's, you know, keep put that in perspective. In the last decade, we saw about a 20% or 21% reduction over the last 10 years, so slightly accelerated pace. And that would drop the intensity, overall average intensity of oil sands. Now, talking over myself, because remember, each facility is going to be quite different. Yep. Um, falling from 69 kilograms per barrel to about 50, there was a range, but about 50 kilograms per barrel by 2035. Um, however, this was predicated not only upon CCS, of course, but a range of technologies. And that level of CCS, again, is less than what the industry is talking about as well. Well, I think you need to be careful, Kevin. I think that, you know, that again, it's not unfound technology, but the oil sands is a different kettle of fish. You know, it's a, I've worked up there. It's a hard place to get things done and things happen, you know, and, and I, I guess without adding a whole bunch of production and even keeping ca enough capital there to, to maintain flat rate, you know, I, I, I think that it, it, well, any kind of prediction is a mugs game. It, um, it is. As you know. Yeah. And I think when you think about some of these technologies and this is, I think as we move through this decade, we, we've had a lot of ambition laid out, not just in Canada, but globally. And now we're having to deal with the pragmatism of how do we actually action these things. And it takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of steel. It's going to take a lot of concrete. And we need to get going. You know, if, you, if we talk about CCS a little bit, you know, you're looking at a five-year build cycle for those kind of initial tranches. Sure, you can expand them more accelerated after. There is not a lot of time between now and 2030. And so to execute, you need to start executing today to bring those projects online. Um, and then that allows you a strong base at which you can expand in the next decade. It's almost like building out the initial building blocks to have a more material um, acceleration of transition in the decade after. Yeah, when you think about that, it's probably more than five, cost more and not turn out like you wanted. When you think about how long it took to build the railway 150 years ago, right? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> just think well, about that. Well, we have to think about too, what's the labor market look like in terms of I was going to say, labor. that was my next question, Kevin. Where do we get the welders, the machine right, machinists, the millwrights, you know, all the operators for equipment? Like this is, this is not, not going to be simple. Like it's, there's a lot of moving pieces here or not moving because of certain conditions like this. Well, it's not just, you know, if you think about CCS, you, we do think the scale of CCS being considered just by the oil sands has the potential to test the labor market. But then you pile on LNG projects in construction, you need to achieve the net zero targets for the electrical, electrical grid by 2035, other, uh, other industrial projects in terms of hydrogen, uh, other CCS projects. It, it is a significant pull on labor for this region or for, frankly, for all of Canada, if you really think about it. So it is a transformational in every way of the word uh, project, but we need to get going if we wanna come close to achieving any of our ambition. Well, and you know, I, I think it, it comes back to, before we finish here and I'm just gonna set the hook a little bit for you, Kevin. We talked about uh, data sets and, and uh, the ability to measure things and measure twice and cut once. Um, is a common thread around people I've worked with. And, you know, there's a real need for better uh, national data collection of what we do on, in all aspects of energy 
so you can better plan for the future, right? And I, I think that be, I just wanted to let the folks know that before uh, we started this podcast, Kevin and I and Joe were having a discussion about this, and I'm going to have Kevin back on here, or we're going to prepare a webcast to talk about about the ability to count not just emissions, but count everything we do in, in the energy sphere from coal plant to nuclear and get that data out there so Canadians can better understand it. It's really a piece of the puzzle in the whole energy spectrum that's missing. Would you not agree? I think it's absolutely critical, um, you know, from a lot of the work I do, which is to enable business decisions ultimately and advise people on the information they require to make good decisions. Um, the value of that sort of information cannot be underplayed in terms of driving capital investments. You know, so all these things we just talked about, the amount of steel and concrete we're thinking about, you know, as large as it is, they need, you need credible information to, to understand the potential risks and opportunities and returns on those investments. And the greater the transparency into that, the easier those decisions can be made and the cash can flow to get these things moving. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's all about the bucks, right? No bucks, no buck Rogers. That is I'll another, people... maybe that's another podcast, but the fact is, you know, you know, we are trying to build and transform the world in many ways, and there's a lot of positive attributes, but a lot of this still has to generate a return on capital for the investments and the investors to be able to give you the money to trust you with it. Um, and we're not talking a lot about the ROIs required um, to fund some of these projects. No, and that's that was a big, well, I could go into detail about the failure of a lot of the smaller projects in the oil sands were basically because of that and not understanding what the real rates of return would be on something that's such a long life asset. Kevin, that's, ta- that's chat for another day. But before you go, as you know, what are you reading or streaming these days? Um, I read everything, Kelly, lots of little things, um, to be honest. So I don't know if I can give you a good answer. Um, mostly internal reports. Um, I've taken oh, all quit the- it. A lot of process now, um, but to be honest, what I'm reading right this moment, I'm recounting Harry Potter with my daughter. So I was going to say, you know what, a guy like you should be reading stuff with your kids. That's absolutely perfect, crucial, and uh, hopeful that that uh, your children become readers too. That's the that's the greatest gift you can give them, or one of the greatest gifts you can give them. Kevin, always a pleasure to have you on. Look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Jill Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.